Hello, and welcome to The Learn It Podcast, a weekly conversation with global education leaders for people who are passionate about the future of learning. Our aim, to introduce you to change makers who are reimagining what students need to know, how they will learn it, and ways technology can help, or not. We look at learning in traditional settings, schools and universities, but also outside of them, after school, at home, and of course, at work. In our second series, we're looking at how schools are coping with COVID-19, including what lessons we will apply to the hopeful aim of building back better. Topics we obsess on include nimble innovations, closing equity gaps, and ways to prepare students with the mindsets and skills to thrive in what is proving to be a very uncertain world. I'm your host, reporter and author, Jenny Anderson. Money is pouring into EdTech. In 2010, there was $500 billion of venture funding. Last year, it was 32 times that. In the past 12 weeks alone, an average of $300 million has been invested every week. And as of mid-May this year, there are 24 EdTech unicorns around the world, collectively valued at more than $69 billion. The question, of course, is whether it's all a flash in the pan, a result of COVID, or whether this is the new normal. To help us unpack the EdTech market, our guest this week is Maya Sharpley, co-founder and managing partner of Juva Ventures. Maya and her partner, Dre Benin, founded Juva last year to invest in pre-K to gray early stage companies focused on improving quality, access, and outcomes. She joined from Learn Capital, where she was a partner for three years. Maya makes a compelling case that some of these changes may well be enduring. She points out that in 2008, the amount of money spent on digital and education was about 1%. Through COVID, it reached almost 4%. But compare that to retail, which in 2008 was 2%, and by 2019 was 15%. That's an industry dominated by the likes of Amazon and eBay. Education clearly has plenty of growing room, and there's a lot of capital to get there. Maya predicts it will go to 10% or even 20% by 2030. When she makes that prediction in the podcast, by the way, she says 2013, no doubt the results of being very jet lagged. This sector is, you know, the spinning is rapidly accelerating and it's permanent. We discuss everything from whether the upscaling in corporate market is getting frothy to the tutoring and test prep market to why she left an established firm with a good portfolio of pre-IPO companies to start her own venture. Maya comes with a range of experience. She served in executive positions within the New York City Department of Education. She's worked at Kaplan, as well as for Charter Schools USA. Maya, I finally got you to come on my podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here and to to speak with you. Let's dive in. There will be many people who want to hear your take on the ed tech market. You are among the many investors who think ed tech is on the cusp of significant growth. Why? It's a great time to be in ed tech. You know, for years, we've been kind of like the, the, the kid who's been pushed to the back of the classroom. And now finally, we're up there with fintech and health tech and mobility and all these other things. I think that, you know, the patterns that we have seen for the past several years now, all of those patterns have been accelerated with COVID. And so we're actually seeing a Cambrian explosion due to a confluence of events including but not limited to rapid changes brought about by the fourth industrial revolution, such as increased digital penetration, which supports enabling technologies. Globalization is huge. We have demand and supply shocks that we're seeing in education. And then there's with COVID, there's now visibility that we never had 
mom and dad have sat around the kitchen table doing eighth grade physics and fifth grade math. Stinks, I can tell you. <laughs> exactly, right? Exactly. I wish I had paid attention a little more when I was going through the first time to be able to help out. And college students are, are studying with mom and dad back in their rooms. Uh, workers are needing to be upskilled, reskilled, and retrained. And so we have all of these things coming together. COVID has accelerated that. And to my mind, when there is that amount of disruption, it's ripe for change and change for the better. What are the chances that it's not that moment? I mean, you can't argue with the fact that there's a lot of capital, 4,000% growth in funding of startups, you know, a lot more capital. You know, we've gone from 500 million in ed tech in 2010 to 12 billion. So there's a lot of money, but that doesn't mean that we're going to get to a lot of change or a lot of successful, durable companies. A couple of things I think that signal why this is an enduring change. First of all, you mentioned the size of the market. Let's look at the penetration of digital in that market, right? So we have seen that from 2008 to 2019, we went from 1% to about 3% share of digital penetration. So the amount of money that was spent on digital in education technology. So it's $6 trillion industry. That share was expected to increase to from 3% to 5%, maybe a little more in 2019. Now what we're seeing is that, you know, sitting at just sub 4%, that could go up to 10% or maybe even higher, maybe even 20% by 2013. So that's a huge increase in the amount of digital spend. To, to understand, and I think really to put it in context, let's look at retail during the same time period. So from 2008, we we're sitting at 2% digital spend in retail. And when you went to 2019, we saw 15%. Only 15%. And honestly, when was the last time I bought something in a store? I mean, I hate to admit that on in a public forum, but it's true. <laughs> exactly. So eBay, Amazon, right? The quote unquote, the death of Main Street, just at 15%. So when you look at what happened in retail, and those changes are here to stay. I'm not saying that they will be the same today as they will be 10 years from now, but I don't think we're going back to the way we were in 2008. And so if I look at that and I say, okay, well, what happened in retail? And now education is very much in the forefront of people's minds. And we already expected that increase in spend, it will accelerate. That's an underlying trend of the industry that makes me think, okay, this sector is, you know, the spending is rapidly accelerating and it's permanent. And you just said something that I'd love to dig into. Do you hear people talking about education in a different way or different people talking about education? I'm hearing different people talk about it, really. The education and the ed tech industry is really very small right? We're, we're a very small, fairly tight-knit community. And so amongst ourselves, we're talking about it the same way that we always have, <laughs> kind of comparing notes. It's growing faster. Uh, more unicorns are being created, et cetera. But with folks, there's a lot now of interest outside of the traditional education industry. So we're seeing a lot more generalists coming in. We're seeing a lot of folks at later stage coming in where some of that risk has been removed. And so you're seeing a lot more interest at the later stage, even all the way up to SPACs, right? So if we think about it, right, the growth of SPACs is something that we've seen. It's been a little rocky over the past few months, still a bit choppy, jury's out. But, you know, the bottom line is that, that this resurgence of SPACs that we're seeing across the board is also coming into education. So we're starting to see um, ed tech players create SPACs to focus on ed tech. So we know that those, you know, all of this, the birth of the unicorns that we're talking about, those companies that were born 
in 2008 or 2014 that are now maturing. You know, that, that, that is there. And so you're, it's drawing new people into the industry. It's drawing new interest into the industry. Where do you see the biggest opportunities here? I know you're an investor, you're looking at everything, but talk to us just a, a little bit about the different parts of it, the consumer market, tutors and testing, the unbundling of universities into certificates and training, corporate upskilling. What excites you the most? I feel like saying yes to everything that you just said. There's so much going on. Obviously, there's a lot of focus on whatever we want to call this future of work, unbundling, rebundling, upskilling, uh, adult education. Uh, it's an area that has a lot of attention. There's a lot of potential. It's also a little frothy, right? So looking at that with a very critical eye, I think the underlying trend there is that you know, to date, um, at least in the U.S., about 70% of government funding is spent on the first 22 years of life, right? What we're starting to see now, what we anticipate that we will see is a shift out. It's a long tail, right? If spending will happen, people will have to be upskilled and reskilled over the course of their lives. Um, so it won't only be, well, you finished college or you got through you know, grad school, now you're done. We're seeing that, well, actually, you're going to have to upskill and reskill and learn again. And so that's an area that's ripe for change. I'd love to dig into that because I hear that a lot. And I'm a little skeptical only because this idea of creating the lifelong learner goes to really will our desire to learn versus skilling, which is what we need to do. And what's going to change to drive that desire? Is it fear? Is it opportunity? Is it, you know, suddenly an innate love of learning is just going to appear magically across the universe? I mean, it, it's not there yet. It's not there yet. I mean, you could, you could say, yes, of course, there's, you know, everyone wants to be a lifelong learner. You could also look at a darker side and say that if we think that it's 85% of the jobs that will exist in 2030 do not exist today, and if you are one of those workers who is impacted, and you know that could be an accountant, as ENR Block puts AI into the system, or it could be, you know, a, a, a driver, right? As uh, long haul trucks, and you have AI going into long haul trucks, it could be a lot of different areas, right? But if the jobs aren't there, then by default, to be gainfully employed, there will have to be some reskilling. The other interesting thing is that you're now starting see corporations get involved and put more money towards education, whether that's education as a benefit or actually to just find workers and train them or upskill or reskill them. So the landscape is shifting as well. I would love to say that, yes, everyone wants to go back and go back to school and learn. I think we all know that's not necessarily the case, but circumstances are changing so quickly that you know there, there's a need. It's driving a need. As you say, the world is changing so fast, it's going to become a necessity. And then hopefully the necessity breeds the muscle that breeds some of the desire. You've often said we need a lifelong learning ecosystem in which teachers and learners focus on collaboration, creativity, and critical thinking. It's hard to disagree with that in theory, but we don't have an education system yet that favors any of that. Are we moving towards that? I would hope so. And I think the smart entrepreneurs that are out there that are thinking about that are moving us there. So if you think about it, Andreas Schlesinger said, the world economy no longer pays you for what you know. Google knows everything. The world economy pays you for what you can do with what you know. So if we take that as kind of like, yeah, okay, right? If you talk to any teenager 
and you ask them a question, the first thing that comes out is the phone, right? So we are in a different environment and the students who are coming through now are digital natives. And so as we think about, well, what does that mean? How do we move from the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic, although I don't really know how R, reading, but anyway, the three R's to the four C's, which is the creativity, collaboration, critical thinking, and communication. That, is, that will be a necessity with Google knowing everything. We need to teach our students, our adults, learners, how to use machines, not how to be used by machines. We need to make sure that the human is actually the one who is actually leveraging the benefits of the machines. And that could be a desktop, that could be a laptop, that could be a, a truck, that could be in the factory, all different areas. As an investor, though, like there's markets where, you know, you can make money like test prep, right? Because that's people need to prepare for tests. Is it a bit of a risk to fund the entrepreneurs who are building the right skills, but the skills that a system doesn't yet value? There's always a risk, but that's what we do. So the bigger the risk, the bigger the reward. Calculated risks, though, right? Calculated risk. What we're seeing, though, is that, yes, there is a risk. But entrepreneurs who are, who are really thinking about this and who are smart are looking at where is their need today and trying to make sure that they're filling that need today with an eye towards the future. So a lot of them are working with corporations, right? They have a direct need right now to put workers into positions, right? Or to fill positions or to plan for new factories or new lines of work or new product extensions or what, whatever to make sure that they have people who can do those jobs. So we're starting to see that actually demand is coming from industry and it's kind of pulling along. Entrepreneurs that are smart can actually tap into that and fill that need. It's a need that colleges and universities aren't stepping up to yet. Not everyone. There are some, right? There are some that have really innovative partnerships. But for the most part, it's a wide open field. And so that's the exciting bit. Tell us about a few companies that you see, either that you were involved with at Learn or that you're funding now, or just that you've observed that you think are doing something special and unique in this space. One exciting example is a company called OnRamp, and uh, it's based out of Oakland. And what they provide are on-ramps for underserved populations to get into coding and computer science jobs. A lot of companies out there are doing this. The unique thing that they do is that they start with the corporation and they work backwards from the needs of the corporation. So they start with what are the skills, what positions do you have open, what are you looking for? And then they go out and recruit candidates and train them. And so they're not only learning the coding that's needed, but they're also learning how to do it in the way of that Pandora does it, or how to do it the way that MailChimp does it, or other large organizations, so that when the learners finish their program, they've had a chance to work alongside of people at Pandora or at MailChimp. Those people have apprenticed them and say, oh yeah, Maya actually understands. Like She gets it, and she's doing it in our way. It's not like she has to come in, and now I have to retrain her again. And so something like that, where you're actually creating a two-sided marketplace, but you're starting with really what is the need, and then how do I make sure I prepare people for that need? Another way of thinking about this is looking at a company uh, we've invested in in Singapore called New Campus. And they're essentially a business school for, I mean, quote unquote, business school, right? They're teaching business school type of classes for people who are small business owners, right? Oftentimes, small business owners don't go to B-School, but yet they still need the skills. They still need to think about accounting. They still need to think about marketing. They still need to think about strategy. They still need to think about all the things that if you are on a more traditional track to go into banking or consulting, you learn. And so, you know, they, they provide these 
I would say bite-sized, but these courses directly for that consumer market so that they can actually run and grow their business from a mom and pop into a more, a larger and a sustainable business. And so that's another example where there isn't really one, anyone who's fitting that need. Maybe you could take a class at a, at a MOOC, but again, it's very generalist. It's not really focused on what do I need to know as a small business owner? And you know, again, addressing that socioeconomic level in society is so important. And before we get to you, let me just ask a last question on the tutoring, just because we've actually had a lot of interest in this space, and I would love to get your take on it. One interesting trend that we've seen with COVID, and it's unclear what will happen, is that when we think about tutoring and, and test prep, training for a test I'll be interested to see where that goes, right? We've seen that colleges have waived the SAT requirement. We've seen that, you know, schools are waiving certain requirements for entrance exams. And so it'll be interesting to see as we go forward and we get out of this time of COVID, which entrance tests still exist. If, you know, universities said last year during the height of the pandemic in 2020 that, you know what, you don't have to take TOEFL or you don't have to take the IELTS test go ahead and take Duolingo. We'll accept that as a proof. And these are Ivy League universities, right? That are saying, we'll accept Duolingo and you pass this test on that. Well, Duolingo is, I don't know how much it is a month, but significantly less than any test prep course plus the IELTS exam or the TOEFL exam. So when we think about test prep or tutoring training to a test, jury's out in my mind on that. However, that said, when we think about tutoring subjects, right? So where you're actually learning either a skill or an academic subject. I don't know if there's any parent around that doesn't say, hey, okay, I'm done with it being teacher. I get the teaching is a hard job. Let's bring a tutor in. And so, you know, I do see that that's an area that will grow. I think that, you know, the key, the key question is how do you differentiate? Because there are a lot of players in the market. So in the K-12 space, we see a lot of players. VIP kid, what Cindy has done with her company is really amazing in the way she thinks about, again, solving a pain point and a need. Parents in China want their children to learn English with an English speaker. Teachers in the U.S. have extra bandwidth at the same hours where kids in China are open because of the time changes. And so her ability to have English-speaking teachers on an online platform teach the children in, in China is, is a, you know, a brilliant idea. And as she expands into other areas... Um, it continues to be quite interesting. Baiju, you know, obviously growing. So I think you have to look market by market. I don't think there's a one size fits all. I think what works in China or works in India doesn't necessarily mean it will work in Europe or in Africa or the US. You have to look market by market and say, what are the pain points we're trying to solve? In the UK, what I saw in COVID was wealthy parents hired a tutor for everything they possibly could. But that clearly just wasn't accessible to others. And it feels like if this is a growing trend, and I think it is, I think a lot of people left that experience saying, wow, this really works. Do you worry at all about the inequities in that? Yes, absolutely. I worry about the inequities in tutoring across the board. You know, if we if we just follow the tutoring example through, we've all heard about the learning loss that has occurred with COVID. And kids have learning loss at different rates. It's not the same rate. So now a teacher, you know, walks in on day one and she has a classroom of children. They may have had different needs coming in pre-COVID, but now that's even more exasperated. And so how do you put a tutor against that, right? It really now has to be personalized so that little Maya is, you know, is learning 
the pieces that she fell behind on, but is able to, on the ones that she focused on, because she was interested, we're accelerating. We're not holding her back. And little Jenny has a different plan. So it'll be interesting to see how entrepreneurs tackle that and do so with equity across the system. But across the board, yes, I do worry about equity and access. One of my hopes is that with the increased penetration of digital spend, we can reach more students who otherwise wouldn't have access to quality education. Still some hurdles, still some infrastructure hurdles, still devices, there's still things we have to consider, but it, you know, there's, there's now an opportunity that you can reach more students who otherwise weren't able to receive high quality education. So potentially that tension between sort of equity and scale could be mitigated by scaling to more in the process of scaling to more. You're also just scaling across socioeconomic. Yes. The, the hope, the hope is that we'll find that you still have to understand the price point. So it's not just wealthy families with the disposable income, you know, it's open to all, but at least we now are starting to get the infrastructure in place. Let's talk about you a little bit. You left a very well-known venture capital firm, which is sitting on a ton of big portfolio companies, which will hit the market soon, to co-found your very own. Tell us that story. It wasn't about running or leaving from Learn. It was about going to, again, back to this inflection point. You know, I was kind of uh, talking to to my partner, Dre Benin, who I founded this with, and we're like, should we do it? Shouldn't we? I'm like, okay, global pandemic around the world. <laughs> Doesn't look like there's an any end in sight. Um, social unrest around the world. It's probably going to get worse going into the election period. You know, everyone's out of work. What does that mean for the economy? Should I quit my job? Hmm. <laughs> Let's think about that. And the answer became, if not now, when? If not now, when? Given all the things that we talked about in the inflection point of moving from 2.0 to 3.0 in education and the need for equity and access and to bring in and fund more diverse founders and to reach more diverse students, if not now, when? And so Dre and I thought, yep, let's go. Let's uh, fund Juvo, which supports pre-K to gray, both domestic and international and early stage companies. And so we're looking for those entrepreneurs, you know, our, our Juvo means to support, to help, to further, to aid. And that's what we want to do. We're looking to empower entrepreneurs who want to elevate education and optimize outcomes. And so we're actively building into to the next learn. And is the diversity piece a core intent focus for you? Well, I mean, both Dre and I are African-American partners at a venture capital firm, which is highly unusual. Not We're not the only ones, but it, it is unusual, especially in um, ed tech. And so I think by default, we come at, at this with a different view. And um, we're excited about building our diverse team as well. We look at the quality of the idea, the strength of the team, the size of the market, and we look at it with open eyes. And you know, what we know, for example, and I think, you know, you've said this, you've said this as well, that women VCs are more likely to invest in women, at least twice as likely to invest in women and startups with one woman founder and three times as likely to invest in startups with a woman CEO. And, you know, is that implicit bias or not? Or is it that we hear things differently that other people might overlook? So when we, when we meet a diverse founder, are we listening and we can hear differently because we were there. We were in those shoes. So we're excited. We're excited for that opportunity. And do you have a better, more diverse pool from which to draw because it's education and not pure tech or health tech? I, I don't know the numbers and I'd love to know. 
Um, I, I'm not sure of the numbers in other fields. I think in terms of women, there are, it, there seem to be more women founders in education because there seem to be more women in education, not always in positions of power, <laughs> not always at the top of, you know, in the CEO role, but there seem to be more women, female founders and people of color or, you know, diverse founders. We're seeing more and more come into the market. Still, the numbers are are small, arguably small, but we're seeing more. You've had such a range of experience. You worked in government with Joel Klein in the Bloomberg administration when he was mayor. You worked with Kaplan as an operator. You're now an investor, have been for a while. Where do you see the power to drive change in education concentrated and do you see it changing? I think it's different depending on which market you're in. So if you are in in Asia or in some places in LATAM, some places, the government has a lot more say. The ministers of education have a lot more power to drive change than, say, for example, in the U.S. Having said that, Biden does have a fairly significant proposal <laughs> out there. And, you know, it remains to be seen what will survive and what will not. But if dollars are allocated against some of the areas that he has proposed, government will have a fairly significant say here in the U.S. as well, right? Because there will be disposable dollars that do not exist right now. At the end of the day, though, I always think it's the entrepreneur. I always think it's that entrepreneur who is living the pain, who wants a solution, and who is willing to think differently to build the next Guild or VIP Kid or Coursera. How significant is Biden's massive investment in education? Will that influence, do you think, the market that you're in and in what way? So we're still trying to digest what's in there. So I, I'm still trying to, to, to go through and understand. Um, but if there are more dollars uh, available, I think that what you'll find start to see is the public sector will start to look towards the private sector for help and assistance, whether that's as partnerships or bringing on new suppliers, right? So bringing on ed tech companies. So you will start to see some of that money filter out into the private sector. As for uh, venture and what that means, you know, I think we'll see companies growing faster. Those companies that that figure out that are solving the right pain and have the right solution, they will grow faster because there's an influx of dollars coming in. Valuations, it's always tricky. I, I kind of think they're a little inflated right now already. We have a lot of money coming in from the outside of EdTech that is driving up, you know, the price to play. So valuations are already increasing. Always a danger because when the when it resets, when the market resets, you want to make sure that as an entrepreneur, you can actually support, you've made, you've made your numbers and you can actually support that high valuation. So I'm more concerned about the fundamentals of business, of any business, than I am about the last value and the last price. And how do you stay connected as an investor to the products you're investing in, right? You're not in a classroom, you're not at a university. I find this really challenging as a reporter, right? I try to get into as many classrooms and universities, but at the end of the day, I'm not living it in the way that I might be some other things. So I'm curious how you stay connected to the ideas. What I love to do is kind of be shotgun with my with my founders. 
So the companies where I sit on the boards, we generally meet biweekly and talk about you know everything from life, love, and the pursuit of the happiness to what's going on in the business. So uh, you know I, I become a sounding board for them. Sometimes that sounding board is, hey, can you come on a on a call with me? Can you come and meet a customer that we're trying to get, or can you come and be a reference? In those conversations, I get a real sense of someone has asked me to come to a university to help them pitch. I get to ask questions of what's really going on on campus. What are you seeing? How do you think this product will work? What other products do you have? And so I'm able to connect with the customer and really understand what's going on with that customer, how they think this product will work and what other products are out there. And so I like having that opportunity. I love working with entrepreneurs who are open and saying, yeah, we're in this together. It's a 17 year ride. Let's go. And that gets me in front of customers. I also sit on on boards of not-for-profits and that also gives me an easier way to get into higher ed or K-12 or language training and get into other areas to understand, you know, from a nonprofit, from just a purely interest, how can I help perspective? When we look at technology, we can see the giants, Amazon for retail, Apple for design and technology, Google for search. What are the revolutionary ed tech companies? If you look at kind of the birth of unicorns, and you look at something like a Coursera, right? They took a MOOC model. So 2012 was the year of the MOOC and everyone was talking about MOOCs. This past year, Coursera IPO'd. They'd been a unicorn before, but they IPO'd this year. And if you look at the evolution of going from free, massive open online courses that are free to what they have today, which there are still some that are open and free, but there's a huge enterprise play. There's a huge B2C play. It's very interesting to see how they've been able to morph to meet the needs of the industry. So that is something that's interesting to me. Guild Education is another one. Female CEO. There are only two female unicorns that I know of. Maybe you know of more, but two female CEO unicorn founders, Cindy at VIP Kid and then Rachel at Guild. And I think what Rachel has done at Guild in terms of thinking about how to work with employers such as Walmart and others to think about training as a benefit and then helping them to retrain and uptrain their employees, I think is, we talked about this before, a harbinger of things to come. So I think she's another example of what could be the Amazons of education. You told us about a new campus, which sounds exciting. Give us a few other portfolio companies to keep an eye on. Schoollinks is a great is a great company in the K-12 space. Katie is just a phenom. She's CEO founder, Katie Fang, CEO founder of Schoollinks. And it's in the career and college readiness space. And you know, to date, for the most part, that's a very bureaucratic process in K-12 that dollars, funding dollars are tied to. It's been about checking boxes and compliance. And it's had to be about compliance because in most high schools, it's a ratio of 500 to one. 500 students to one counselor. And so that's just an overwhelming number of students that counselors have to have to keep track of. What Katie has been able to do is go and sit with students, go and sit with counselors, go and sit with employers and create a platform that is engaging, still meets the need, but actually takes it a step beyond in learning. She's created a platform that's, you know, meets students where they are. It's an interesting way to end but also just relates back to so much of what you've been talking about with personalization and with meeting the moment, right? Which is seeing students or learners as individuals and then building some technology solutions to meet that. So that's a great example to end on. I have three rapid fire questions. What is your favorite book about learning? 
Well, one of the books that I'm reading right now, it's called Grasp, and it's uh, by Sanjay Sarma, and it's the science of transforming how we learn. And it's talking about kind of more the cognitive side. Sanjay is uh, with Open Learning at MIT, and so he's really thinking about, well, how do people learn? And, you know, what is the science of how we learn? And so I think that especially as we look, I always want to make sure that I'm focused on technology enabled education, not ed tech. And so understanding how the brain works and how you learn is uh, what I'm trying to get smart on. And what's your favorite book not about learning? My favorite book not about learning, I would, there are a lot, <laughs> so it's hard to pick one. Um, one book that really, that really impacted me was Cleopatra. It's her life story by Stacey Schiff. Lots of things that we didn't know. We've heard a lot about Cleopatra and how she had the love affairs with Mark Antony. It wasn't the real story about, about the woman, a very intelligent woman who ran a country, one of the leading country in a very difficult period um, and did so quite successfully. I love that one. That's fantastic. And what are you binge watching? I actually um, am not binge watching anything. I wish I had time, but it usually gets to when it's when it's time to do that. It's usually like I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the backs of my eyelids. Maya, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was wonderful speaking with you as always. I was struck by a lot of things in this conversation. One, that it's a very good time to be an ed tech entrepreneur. There's so many problems to be solved and at present, a lot of money and attention coming at it from both the private sector, but also, at least in the US, the public one. I enjoyed discussing the challenges of funding entrepreneurs who are pushing for equity against the very real need to make profits. And I was excited by two trends she saw. One, a shift away, maybe, from test prep tutoring, because some of those tests will go away. And two, entrepreneurs finding ways to deliver training and support to people who want jobs by starting with industry and working backwards. Colleges and universities, as she said, just aren't really stepping up. I love discussing the explosion in the upskilling market and whether we can inspire lifelong learners or whether widespread automation and job upheaval will just make that necessary. Finally, I'm really impressed by Maya's decision to partner with Dre to seize this moment and start a new fund, which looks at all the normal things, business model, market, pain point, but also brings the unique lens of two African-American investors. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and see you next week. We'll link to the items mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. And you can find out more about our community of global education leaders and upcoming meetups by joining our mailing list at learnit.world. In the meantime, stay safe, stay curious, and see you next week.